World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Ogumbiyi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. WeWork has never turned a profit in its 13 years of existence, so not everyone was surprised when it declared bankruptcy. As it unravels, it's clear that it isn't the only property company in trouble. And last month, the men's world marathon record was smashed by 34 seconds. A sub-two-hour run is within sight. And these great strides have much to do with what's on the athlete's feet. First up, though. Voters in the Netherlands have delivered a political earthquake this morning. Geert Wilders, the leader of the far-right party for freedom, or PVV, has won the most seats in the country's parliamentary elections. I'm in politics for 25 years now, and this is the happiest day um, of my life so far in politics. We, we became the number one party by far. I mean, it's what a lot of people... 26 parties were vying for power in yesterday's poll. And the anti-immigration, anti-EU leader beat all expectations to secure 37 spots out of 150 in the Dutch parliament. Mr Wilders still needs to persuade several other parties to back his bid to become prime minister. But the result heralds a new era for Dutch politics, one that will be watched carefully across Europe. Geert Wilders' electoral success in the Dutch elections is a very big surprise. Matt Steinglass is The Economist's Europe correspondent based in Amsterdam. He was not expected to be a particularly important factor in these elections initially. During the last days of the campaign, there were some signs in polls that his party was rising, but no one, himself included, expected the size of the victory that came in. Who is Heert Wilders, and what's his background, what's he known for? Heert Wilders has been around for quite a while. He's been in Parliament for 25 years. He started out as a member of the center-right VVD party, the Liberals. But he seized the opportunity in the early 2000s to become an anti-Muslim populist. He started a new party in 2006. In 2010, they actually took 16% of the vote and got big enough that they got themselves included, not in government exactly, but in what's called a confidence and supply arrangement, where the government depends on them, but they're not literally in the government. That lasted a bit, then it broke apart, and no one would cooperate with him again. 
other parties see him as vastly too radical, anti-Muslim, and his platform includes calls to ban mosques, ban the Quran, block women wearing headscarves from serving in public functions. These are all stances that many other parties consider against the Constitution, against the spirit of Dutch inclusion and tolerance. But Matt, if his policies go against that Dutch tolerance, how come he's proven to be so popular? First of all, Geert Wilders has come to own the issue of opposition to immigration. Some Dutch anti-immigration sentiment is based on resentment of the country's Muslim population. Some of it is based on anxiety over rising housing prices. Geert Wilders' Party for Freedom, the PVV, supports a nexit. They want the Netherlands to leave the EU. Better educated voters tend not to like that idea. They recognize that the Dutch economy is completely dependent on its relationship with other European countries, and this would be a disastrous idea. But he also is quite left-wing on social and welfare and benefits policies, and that matches the profile of a lot of populist right-wing candidates across Europe. They support more government spending on health care, more government spending on social housing and benefits for people in lower-income brackets. And that's quite popular among working-class, lower-educated voters. So that mix makes him quite a formidable candidate. Now, what about Wilders' competition? How did the other parties fare? There are a lot of political parties in the Netherlands. The country is famous for political fragmentation. There were 26 parties running this time. At the top of this race, there were basically four parties competing. There was an alliance of the Labour and Green Left parties who had teamed up in an effort to try to come first. They actually came in second. The party that placed third is the Liberals, the VVD, which is the party of the outgoing Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, who was in charge for 13 years. And Mark Rutte's successor, Dylan Jezelguz, ran an uninspiring campaign. But it is interesting that she is a Kurdish-Turkish immigrant, and she made her name by profiling herself as a strong opponent of wokeism and so forth. The other party that was contending for the lead, which ended up in fourth, is a new party called New Social Contract, led by sort of a gadfly MP named Peter Omtzigt. And he made a name for himself by investigating a huge scandal over benefits in which Dutch taxpayers were unjustly accused of fraud. And that was a concern that many Dutch people said was near the top of their list in this election, the sense that the government is bureaucratic, insensitive, and unable to respond to constituents' complaints. In that case, literally, it went after innocent Dutch people and bankrupted many of them. So it's not surprising they did quite well. His party may end up being the kingmaker, which decides who actually becomes prime minister. But many had expected him to do somewhat better. Well, despite coming in first, there's no clear majority here. Do you think that Wilders will be able to form a government? That is a huge question. The question is whether other parties are willing to overlook what they have described as their basic moral rule of law concerns over cooperating with a party that discriminates on the basis of religion. Now, Wilders took a milder tone in this election in a deliberate effort to make himself seem prime ministerial and a potential candidate for government. He said that he would put his anti-Muslim stances, quote, in the refrigerator, unquote. He has not said that he will drop them. And Yezelgos, for example, insisted that he should simply scrap those parts of his party platform if he wants to be a serious candidate for prime minister. And Peter Omtzigt, that rule of law candidate who I mentioned earlier, was even more categorical in rejecting Wilders during the campaign. 
He said this contradicted everything that he believes about the rule of law, which is the main raison d'etre of his new political party. Also, Dilan Yezelgus, during her campaign, said that she didn't want to rule out Mr. Wilders' party in advance because she said that would be undemocratic towards his voters. Having taken that position during the campaign, it's going to be very difficult for her to say afterwards, well, a huge number of people voted for him, but I'm going to disregard their votes because I don't agree with the character of his party. And Matt, how did we get here? The overarching story here is that Mark Rutte was the prime minister of the Netherlands for 13 years which is remarkable, especially in a country that has so many parties and where the party landscape tends to change so fast. He stayed on top by displaying a remarkable ability to dodge blame for any scandal or mistaken policy that came up. The most important one was probably the benefits scandal, which I mentioned earlier. There were also scandals over the government's refusal to admit that gas mining in Groningen, an area in the north, was causing earthquakes and to compensate people properly. All of this dramatically undermined faith in government and people weren't really sure where to put the blame. And what are the wider implications of this victory for European politics? The implications for Europe depend a bit on what happens in coalition negotiations in the Netherlands. If Mr. Wilders actually becomes prime minister, then the implications for Europe are huge. His party platform calls for leaving the European Union. That's not going to happen because none of the parties that he could cooperate with will be on board for that. But it does mean that the Netherlands switches back to a tone of resistance, resentment, foot dragging. Wilders opposes support for Ukraine. And in terms of what it signals about the strength of the right in Europe... It shows that this populist right-wing movement all across Europe is still strong and edging forward. And I would say above all, what it shows is the weakness of the left in Europe. The Green Left Labour Alliance managed to finish second, but overall the whole spectrum of leftist parties took something like 35% of the vote. This is a moment when the left seems unable to find its issues and unable to get its message across, and that is making way for populist, hard-right politicians like Keir Wilders. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ori. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Since being founded in 2010, WeWork, the office space giant, has actually not turned a profit. Wendelin von Brido is a senior correspondent who writes about business for The Economist. After a meteoric rise and a quite steep fall in recent years, it declared bankruptcy on November 6th. 
WeWork, the company that revolutionized co-working spaces, is shutting down dozens of offices. Which could it still US has 777 locations across 39 countries. Each of them are kitted out with very comfy leather chairs, glass doors, fancy coffee machines, beer on tap, plants. I've myself worked in a WeWork office when I was Midwest correspondent in Chicago. They are unlike any other office I've ever worked in. Adam Neumann, the founder of WeWork, told investors that WeWork was not just office space, but it would elevate the world's consciousness. Now take that. Space to start up, space to converge, space to grow, higher. So at the height of all the silliness in early 2019, WeWork was valued at as much as $47 billion, but the company started to unravel soon after that. And now WeWork's fall is revealing deepening cracks in real estate elsewhere in other countries. How did WeWork get to this point? It grew very, very quickly, leasing more and more office space in more and more countries. Adam Neumann, the co-founder, was just very good at persuading people that they were actually a snazzy tech company and not an office rental firm. In 2019, after yet another funding round by its main backer, Japan SoftBank, they decided to go public, to list on the New York Stock Exchange. And that's when prospective investors took a look at the figures and the unorthodox management style of Adam Neumann. And they said, no way, this is not working out. The upset was such that the whole plan had to be shelved and it never happened in 2019. And in its aftermath, Mr. Neumann was made to go. He received $1.7 billion to leave. After a few months, Sandeep Marani, a real estate veteran, was brought in and he tried his best to right the ship. There was a cost-cutting drive and an efficiency drive. Two years later, in 2021, he managed to list the firm, after all, at the New York Stock Exchange through a special purpose acquisition company and at a far more modest valuation of $9 billion. Compare that with the 40 $7 billion two years ago. But then WeWork was also very unlucky because the COVID-19 pandemic hit and it caused a slump in the office market and basically a probably enduring shift to remote working. Skyscrapers and office buildings, once stacked high with businesses, are experiencing high vacancy rates in the U.S. So it all went downhill from there. And you mentioned that this reflects something more broadly happening in real estate. What other companies are facing similar problems to WeWork? It's not only WeWork because there's a general downturn in commercial property, which is related to higher interest rates in most countries and certainly in Europe and in America. So a few days before WeWork filed for bankruptcy, René Benko, an Austrian property tycoon, was ousted from Cigna the 23 billion euro property empire that he had built. They are different from WeWork in the sense that they actually own the properties rather than lease them. And its portfolio includes the Chrysler building in New York City, the KDW, a posh department store in Berlin, a stake in Selfridges, another posh department store in London, various luxury hotels and so forth. But as I said, Cigna's problems are not identical to WeWork's. In what way? Well, very importantly, Cigna has not been declared bankrupt. Maybe they will manage without bankruptcy, but it has faced a liquidity crunch. 
The other big difference is that, different from Mr. Neumann, Mr. Benko was very actively involved in the management of his company until basically the day of his ousting. He has now formally stepped down from his role as chairman of the advisory council, and he has handed over his job to Arndt Geiwitz, who is a German auditor by training, but really an insolvency expert. And Mr. Benko has taken a step back. Mr. Neumann, on the other hand, has been out since 2019. And he's basically been reduced to sniping at WeWork's collapse, implying that it could have all been avoided and the great company he built still has a future. So what can we learn from these cases? What we can learn is both companies were focused on growth to the exclusion of almost everything else. That's risky because they were relying on basically a venture capital bonanza and low interest rates. And both has gone. So interest rates are higher now, plus there's not so much venture capital sloshing around. So their bets were such that they just didn't work without a very favorable environment. Mr. Benko accumulated a mountain of debt by purchasing new assets. And he was always paying juicy dividends, but it only worked because he kept getting new credit. So he couldn't actually do it without constantly accumulating even more debt. WeWork is a little bit different. One of the very risky bets they made is they took out lengthy leases on properties, sometimes as much as 20 years. And it's very hard to break these leases unless you are bankrupt, which is now their case. They also spent a lot on refurbishments, on fancy furniture and on table football and so forth. So when the office market turned, they didn't make any provisions and it all went downhill very quickly. And what does the future look like for these companies, Wendelin? Both may still survive. The Chapter 11 bankruptcy code in America allows firms to, in a way, recover, to regroup and to come out stronger. So the new CEO of WeWork, David Tolley, thinks that WeWork will remain in bankruptcy for around seven months and then it can sort of pick up where it left off. That's, of course, an optimistic scenario, but that's what he's thinking. As for René Benko and his empire, I talked to a professor at Innsbruck University called Leonard Dobusch, and he thinks that Mr. Geiwitz, the new guy in charge, will break up Cigna, will sell assets and pay down debts. But there is a chance that at least the rump of Cigna will survive. So both of them could survive and possibly even get stronger again, but without their respective founders or co-founders, so without Mr. Banker and Mr. Neumann. Wendelin, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure, Ori. waving to the crowd, kisses, an amazing effort by Kelvin Kiptum for a new world record at the Bank of America. Last month's Chicago Marathon was a hugely significant event in the sport because a young man called Kelvin Kiptum didn't just break the men's marathon record, he obliterated it. He took 34 seconds off the marathon record. So he's just outside two hours and 35 seconds, which really, when you think about it, is a frightening pace for somebody to run more than 26 miles. Mike Jakeman writes about sport for The Economist. It was an incredible performance, but the fact that there have been so many fast marathons run over the last three to four years has drawn attention to what Mr Kiptum 
and many of his rivals are wearing on their feet, which is extremely fast, new generation running shoes that have been developed by Nike and Adidas in recent years. And those shoes have drawn a fair amount of controversy and are threatening to take the shine off what are really some staggering athletic achievements. Tell us a bit more about these shoes. So when you look at them, they've got giant foam soles on them. They look a bit like they're going to kind of spring you along very quickly, which in fact they do. About five years ago, Nike and Adidas sort of first went to market with these shoes they've been working on very secretively for a long time. And they basically do act as springs. They help you conserve your energy. So when you push your foot down, you keep more of that energy and you're able to spring forward faster. And they've done lots of trials and estimated that you get four to five percent increase in your running economy, which if you're an elite runner in a very fast race is going to add up to quite a significant advantage over your previous times. And I think this is very much what's happened for Mr. Kiptum running uh, in the men's race, but also in several women's races as well. And are the authorities just allowing this advantage? Yes. Broadly speaking, World Athletics have had to respond to the invention of these shoes quite carefully. And they've laid out new criteria, which includes some technical specifications, but also the requirement that any of these shoes that are worn by athletes have to be available on the market for both elite runners and recreational ones to buy in order for them to be used. So there's no sort of advantage depending on which company you might be sponsored by, for example. So broadly speaking, yes, they are legal. Of course, the advantage of these shoes is so significant that some people have equated them with doping. And do you agree with those people? No. The broad difference between the shoes and injecting yourself with lots of drugs is that the shoes aren't actually innately harmful in any way. They just improve your performance. Whereas, of course, doping is quite clearly harmful to health. So the broader point here, I guess, is is where you draw the line. And we have generally been quite accepting of bringing technology into sport because we like the idea that we are, as a human race, getting better at sports. That's what injects a lot of momentum into sports like running, like swimming, where it's primarily athletes against the clock. It would be very, very boring if for 10 or 20 years we made no sort of progression at all. So technology kind of feeds into that. And if you decide that these shoes are just too good, well, where do you draw the line? We like the fact that we have football pitches that are perfectly manicured to mean that players are able to perform to the highest possible level. Swimming pools are deeper, which actually means you get less friction through the water and you're able to swim faster. So generally, speaking, we are accepting of technology in sport. And I think that's a good thing. And I think these shoes are just another manifestation of that. But Mike, at some point, there has to be limits on this tech, right? Yeah. And that is part of the role of sporting regulators. And there have been examples where technology has been banned. So for example, there was a space of world records in the swimming pool at the Beijing Olympics in 2008, because the authorities have permitted full body swimsuits which reduced drag and improved buoyancy. And they banned them. And then subsequently, it's taken a long, long time for those world records to catch up with the records that were set in Beijing. And, you know, there are limits on how thick your cricket bat can be to stop batsmen scoring too many runs versus the bowlers. Javelins have been made less aerodynamic. There have been examples of technology that's been sort of tinkered with to try and maintain sporting balance and competitiveness. But I think banning these shoes would be regressive, and extremely difficult to enforce. So it is this where do you draw the line problem. So I think what we're going to see is more fast times and the majority of people are going to enjoy that. You know, we are going to see a legitimate marathon run in less than two hours in the next couple of years, possibly on Mr. Kipton. He's run three marathons in his life and they are all within the top 10 fastest times ever run. He is a legitimately brilliant athlete and I think it's miserable and carping to spend all the time looking at his feet. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Have you been following the drama with OpenAI? Keeping tabs on what's going on with artificial intelligence can be a challenge, but it's very important. So important, in fact, that we've dropped the paywall on yesterday's episode of Babbage, our science and tech podcast, where you can hear from computer scientist Fei-Fei Li about the challenges ahead for generative AI. Let us know what you think of the episode by dropping us a line at podcasts at economist.com. If you haven't subscribed to Economist Podcast Plus yet, we have a Black Friday sale. For just $2 or pounds or euros a month, so that's half price, you can get access to all of our award-winning podcasts. Follow the link in our show notes to snap up the deal before Monday, the 27th of November. And we'll see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.